This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have a special guest today in our second segment, and uh, I think by way of introduction, I will read from the Sacramento Bee Best of 21Q, also known as the Bee's Entertainment Blog, from, uh, well, about two weeks ago. Sacramento's only daily public affairs radio program, Insight, on KXJZ 90.9 FM, soon will lose its senior producer and the show's behind-the-scenes prime mover. Benjamin Jonas Keeling will leave Capital Public Radio at the end of this month and on February 5th will become the staff director of the Persian Radio and TV service offered by the Voice of America in Washington, D.C. The service airs news reports delivered in Farsi throughout Iran. About once a month, I'm fortunate enough to sit in for Jeffrey Callison over on Insights. I'm very pleased that Benjamin Jonas Keeling will join us in our second segment to talk a little bit about uh, his past few years here in Sacramento and what the future has in store for him, which does sound quite interesting. Let us begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, although it appears actually, Mr. McMillan, uh, we have a call I need to take. That's right. All right. Caller, are you there? I just wanted you to know that I think that that was a wonderful article in the Sacramento Bee last week. Well, we appreciate that very much. It's about time that everyone knows what a great show you have. (laughs) I listen to you every week. Well, thank you very much. And um, did you get the fruitcake? Mom, i got to do the rest of the show, okay? Uh, Okay, dear. Bye-bye. All right. Where were we? Yes, on this date in history, which is January 18th, In 1854, in La Paz, Mexico, William Walker, a self-styled American conquistador, proclaims the independent republic of Sonora. The Mexicans weren't interested, however, and drove him out. Walker later made himself president of Nicaragua, at least for a while. On January 11, 1911, Lieutenant Eugene Ely lands his Curtis biplane on a special platform mounted on the deck of a ship in San Francisco Harbor, thereby demonstrating the feasibility of aircraft carriers. On January 18, 1943, during World War II, the Soviet Army announced that the siege of Leningrad had been broken. And finally, on January 18, 1971, Senator George S. McGovern of South Dakota begins his anti-war campaign for the 1972 Democratic presidential nomination by vowing to bring home all U.S. soldiers from Vietnam. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven, open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. Actually, it turns out we have one final item from January 18th, which I think will make our quip of the day. January 18, 1983, American rock musician Frank Zappa defined the music news process. Quote, Most rock journalism is by people who can't write, interviewing people who can't talk for people who can't read. For our quote of the day, we're going to go to Voltaire. We liked his quote on last week's program so much that we will again cite the illustrious Frenchman who once said, It is dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. 
Our joke of the day comes from Jay Leno, who noted that Ike Turner is single again. His 13th wife has left him, said Leno. She came home unexpectedly and caught him punching out another woman. Our statistic of the day comes from USA Today slash Gallup poll from last month. It noted that while 80% of Americans say it's important to win the war in Iraq, only 16% think that we are, in fact, winning. 62% say the war has not been worth the loss of American lives. And as a follow-up statistic on last week's program where we talked about uh, people in the National Park Service selling books about the Grand Canyon, uh, equating it to Noah's Flood, i.e. something like 6,000 years ago. In fact, according to Wikipedia, the major geologic exposures in Grand Canyon range in age from the 2 billion year old Vishnu Schist at the bottom of the inner gorge to the 230 million year old Kaibab limestone on the rim, which makes the most recent deposits about 60,000 times as old as the purported age of Noah. Let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for insomniac bears after brown bears at the Moscow Zoo finally went into hibernation two months late. The bears had been pacing restlessly for months, disoriented by Moscow's warmest winter on record. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for skiers, after climate scientists predicted that with global warming and the return of El Nino, 2007 will be even warmer than 2006, or any previous year in the past century. And finally, it was an ugly week a couple weeks back for Indian men after a study found that up to 60% of the country's males are too modestly endowed to wear condoms of the international standard size. Dr. Chandra Puri called for a wider variety of condom sizes in India's vending machines, quote, so people can pick a condom with confidence that is suited to their needs. Martin Luther King Day was commemorated uh, on Monday, and it was is with some sadness that we note uh, that the situation in America is not good for black youth. Last spring, a report by the National Urban League noted that the true jobless rate of black men in their 20s who have no high school diploma is 72%. The New York Times noted last year that the answer isn't structural to this, it's cultural, and it starts with a disastrous, self-inflicted breakdown of the black family. It was noted that today, a black child is less likely to be raised in a two-parent home than a black slave was in the 1850s. 
Said Orlando Patterson in the Times, much of the blame lies with the cool pose culture of the urban hip-hop gangsta world. Its seductive emphasis on violence, drugs, material objects, and promiscuity mean that thousands of young black men are abandoning maturity for the dead-end life of the streets. This shows that, unfortunately, we remain a long way from fulfilling the dreams of the great civil rights leader, Martin Luther King. On a somewhat happier note, we note that uh, for the first time during the Bush presidency, the Federal Climate Agency confirmed that human activity contributes to global warming. In a news release reporting that 2006 was the hottest year on record in the United States, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said man-made greenhouse gases were, quote, a contributing factor to the unusually warm temperatures, unquote. Previously, NOAA scientists complained they were not allowed to discuss the human impact on climate changes. So I guess some progress is better than none. And speaking of ominous threats to mankind, and, and we surely are, the keepers of the doomsday clock moved its hands forward Wednesday to reflect what they call worsening nuclear and climate threats to the world. According to the Voice of America, since 1947, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has maintained their so-called doomsday clock. It's a symbolic timepiece which measures how close mankind is to midnight, representing the total destruction of the Earth. Said the organization's executive director, North Korea's recent test of a nuclear weapon, Iran's nuclear ambitions, a renewed emphasis on the military utility of nuclear weapons, the failure to adequately secure nuclear materials, and the continued presence of some 26,000 nuclear weapons in the United States and Russia are symptomatic of a failure to solve the problems posed by some of the most destructive technology on Earth. Executive Director Kenneth Benedict added, that this time nuclear annihilation is not the scientists' only concern. The dangers posed by climate change are nearly as dire as those posed by nuclear weapons. The effects may be less dramatic in the short term than the destruction that could be wrought by nuclear explosions, but over the next three to four decades, climate change could cause irredeemable harm to the habitats upon which human societies depend for survival. When the Doomsday Clock was created by the magazine staff in 1947, it was initially set at 7 minutes to midnight. It has moved 17 times since then. It got as close as 2 minutes to midnight in 1953, following U.S. and Soviet hydrogen bomb tests, and as far away as 17 minutes to midnight in 1991, after the superpowers reached agreement on a nuclear arms reduction. I think we need some happier news at this juncture. So uh, let us turn to UC Davis Magazine's winter 2007 edition and note uh, this item. UCD ophthalmology professor Ivan Schwab won an Ig Nobel Award last year. Yay! The Ig Nobles are bestowed each year by Annals of Improbable Research magazine for 10 achievements that, quote, First make people laugh, and then make them think, unquote. Dr. Schwab was selected for an Ig Nobel Award based on his study on why woodpeckers don't get headaches. 
The prize that Dr. Schwab shared with the late UCLA psychiatry professor Philip May was the first to be awarded in ornithology. The awards are presented at Harvard University by real Nobel laureates. The article, titled Cure for a Headache, was based on Dr. May's woodpecker research and appeared in the British Journal for Ophthalmology in 2002. In addition to looking at why woodpeckers don't get headaches, May and Schwab also identified how the bird's unique skulls and jaws protect them from retinal detachments, brain damage, and spinal cord injuries. We, uh, we've had a chance to speak with uh, Dr. Schwab since we learned about this, uh, this distinguished award, and he does, has agreed to speak to us in the future. We're looking forward to that. We should note that according to the Annals of Improbable Research, the official criteria for winning an ignoble prize is that they are for, quote, achievements that cannot or should not be reproduced, unquote. The unofficial criterion for winning a prize is that the achievement must be both goofy and thought-provoking. Some might argue that's the Radio Parallax motto, goofy and thought-provoking. But uh, we do look forward to our future talk with Dr. Ivan Schwab. During the past week, we've been encouraged to note that Senator Barack Obama of Illinois is talking about making a run for the presidency. Senator Obama has barely gotten into the Senate, and we think this, uh, by normal standards, would be somewhat premature. But the senator seems to be taking a principled stand against the war in Iraq. This, while other purported uh, frontline candidates, such as Hillary Rodham Clinton, seem to be looking the other way. Writing in the Christian Science Monitor last week, Gail Russell Chaddock noted that if Congress decides to block the president's plan for a troop buildup in Iraq, it has all the clout it needs, at least on paper, to trim war funding through its power of the purse. Wrote Chaddock, call it the Murtha plan. Representative John Murtha, Democrat of Pennsylvania, has been the lead advocate for using funding to force a change in the course of the war. His Defense Appropriations Subcommittee is the gateway for every dime spent on the war, and Murtha says he will use that power to bar a troop surge in Iraq if, for example, it undermines the military's domestic readiness. To wield this power, Representative Murtha needs the president to submit a request for additional defense spending before a surge, quote-unquote, surge of new troops into Iraq. By the way, so far, all war funding has been handled that way as supplemental requests to Congress outside the normal budget process. That's right. The $2 billion a week we're spending, which will come up on its fourth year anniversary in March, all that spending came about by way of supplemental requests outside the normal budget process. With 11% of the U.S. population in favor of sending more troops uh, over into Iraq, it's uh, nice to see that uh, some folks in Congress are willing to stand up to the White House. But I could show my prowess be a lion, not a mouse, if I only had the nerve. You take a couple minutes to look at an article from Mother Jones magazine uh, last month titled Schrodinger's War the title originating in a famous uh, paradox in physics from um, the scientist Erwin Schrodinger. Said the magazine, 
Is the United States at war? The answer seems obvious. Of course we are. George W. Bush has repeatedly referred to himself as a war president. When questioned about anything from military tribunals to domestic surveillance to huge budget deficits, his administration has a stock response. We're at war. The National Security Strategy, the preeminent statement of America's military doctrine, states bluntly, America is at war. The official position is crystal clear, isn't it? Well, maybe not. Appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee last year, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez was quick to note that there's been no declaration of war. What Congress had granted the president was an authorization to use military force. Why the distinction? Said the magazine, the answer to these questions reveal the Bush administration at its most nakedly, hilariously duplicitous, inventing an entirely new and logic-defying state of being for America, something no one is opposed because no one realized it could exist in the first place. The magazine reminds us that the framers of the Constitution said over and over that they were giving Congress, not the president, the power to start wars. James Madison wrote that, quote, the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it, unquote. Since 1789, Congress has declared war 11 times in five wars from the War of 1812 to World War II. Its last official declaration was against Axis-allied Romania in June of 1942. However, Congress has often passed authorizations to use military force, or AUMFs, which are onomatopoeically pronounced oomphs. This gives the executive branch permission to send troops to battle without a full declaration of war. The most infamous oomph was the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. The most recent was the authorization regarding Iraq in October 2002. This is apparently where Alberto Gonzalez's uh, statements to the Senate come in. With all the arguments we're having in the U.S. over what, uh, what the president is authorized to do, the Justice Department decided that the September 2001 oomph actually gives the president more power than a formal declaration of war. The Justice Department issued a white paper claiming that, in other words, Congress had granted the Bush administration superpowers without having any idea that it had done so. Which is why, ladies and gentlemen, we think that talk of impeachment should come up in 2007. We stress that the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of the radio station, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. All right, I have one final item that we'll end the segment with, which I've been saving since my trip to Central America. This came out of the weekly English-language newspaper in Costa Rica. Article from the Reuters News Service by Sue Fleming. I'm just going to read it as it's written. Hoping to boost America's image abroad, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice appointed U.S. figure skating star Michelle Kwan as a public diplomacy envoy for the Bush administration. Once an aspiring skater herself, Rice said Kwan showed humility and grace under pressure during her athletic career and was the perfect choice as a goodwill ambassador. As the top U.S. diplomat, Rice has a bag full of diplomatic challenges from the growing violence in Iraq to North Korea and Iran's nuclear programs. The State Department hopes using sports and other public figures as envoys will stem the tide of suspicion over U.S. foreign policy goals, particularly after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. 
Kwan's main job will be to meet young people worldwide and tell them more about America and foster an understanding of, quote, our democratic principles, unquote, said Rice. So in summary, Secretary of State Rice thinks we can boost America's image abroad using figure skaters. Personally, our suggestion would be that she might want to try stopping a war that's a quagmire. A war considered by most of the world to be unjust and illegal. That's our opinion. What do you think, dear listener? Send us your response to info at radioparallax.com and we'll see if we can't talk about it in future shows. It is only a paper moon Hanging over a cardboard seat But wouldn't be make-believe If you believe in me Let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And we'll return in our second segment with our good friend Benjamin Jonas Keeling. We are back, and I would like to note at this point that we have a very special guest, someone I've been trying to get on this show for quite a while, and unfortunately it's taken apparently his leaving Sacramento, or imminently leaving Sacramento to make it all happen, but I would like to say, Benjamin Jonas Keeling, welcome to Radio Parallax. Well, thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be in your fabulous studio. (laughs) And if there was any time to give in to your uh, guest request, I figured this was the time before I leave. Indeed. And we should explain to people, if they did not catch uh, either the Sacramento Bee or the blog on the Sacramento Bee website, uh, Voice of America is calling, and you are going to leave Insight and go back, I guess it is, to Washington, D.C. That's right. I worked at the Voice of America previously from 94 to 2000, Uh, had a wonderful time there, and uh, decided to leave, but uh, they're calling me back. So I'm going to head back and see what we can't do there. All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about what you've done at Insight, because uh-huh. uh, when I am sitting in the guest chair for Mr. Jeffrey Callison, I look through the little glass window, it, you're, you're the man. I'm the man. <laughs> and it's been a very, I must say, Benjamin, it's been very reassuring to me, knowing that you're in there. Well, I appreciate that. Sam McManus, in his article in The Bee last week, called me Insight's prime behind-the-scenes mover, something like that. And I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like secret agent. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, let, we'll get the insight, I think, in a minute, uh, a, a way of you know looking back. But uh, the future is very interesting for you in that uh, Voice of America has called you as part of a big effort they're going to make to bring information into Iran that's not being filtered through the Iranian government, which is, of course, does not have a, uh, a reputation for being unbiased. Well, that's right. In in Iran right now, the uh, the media is is state controlled in a sense. That is, if uh, if any of the the local um, news outlets um, stray from what the Iranian government prefers to see in the news, then all of a sudden um, they're told to uh, the people who, who who put out the the bad news, quote unquote, are are ejected from their positions. So so there is uh, government oversight on all the news agencies there. So the people in Iran do not have access to to free news. And the Voice of America's um, intent is to provide uncensored and unbiased news to the people of Iran. And it's a very noble effort. 
And uh, I'm very, very happy to be able to, to take part in that, in that mission. Well, I believe uh, this last Saturday, National Public Radio aired a, aired a discussion of this very topic. It wasn't about the electronic media, but it was about publishers in Iran and the hoops. The government makes them jump through, and if they don't like their coverage, they just make sure that what they want to put out does not see the light of day, does not get published. Right. Yep. That's exactly the problem in Iran. And I think, Benjamin, we probably should refer our listeners to the NPR website. It was an article by Mike Schuster. It aired on Weekend Edition Saturday, January 6th, and did talk about how, in around, the former president, Katami, had left the publishing industry alone, but the current president, uh, Ahmadinejad, uh, censors are at work, it said, holding up the printing of thousands of books. Very, very good story. Right. And you're, gonna, you're, of course, going to do your, what you can to fight all that. Absolutely. Um, right now, The Voice of America is broadcasting four hours of television service into Iran. And uh, shortly after I get there, we'll be increasing that to eight hours. We'll be working toward a, um, a full schedule of 24 hours uh, per day. And uh, we also have medium and shortwave broadcasts that go into Iran as well. I think just about everybody's heard about VOA, but I don't think maybe if you haven't had a short wave or you've been in a foreign country listening to it, you may not know that much about it. What, what, what exactly is the Voice of America? What was its mission? Right. Well, the Voice of America's mission really is to provide um, uncensored and unbiased news to, to populations in the world that don't have access to free media. And, uh, you know, it, its beginnings are a little bit murky because it started as one sort of service and then melded into another. But the first times we really heard the, the term Voice of America was in 1942. The station was broadcasting in Germ uh, to Germany, and it grew from there. Right now, the Voice of America broadcasts in 44 different lang languages. The languages that it broadcasts in shift from time to time as, as, uh, as we see um, hotspots changing around the world. But currently, it has an estimated listenership of about, of about 115 mil million people around the globe. I didn't realize it actually dates back to World War II. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. A struggle yeah. with Germany. Yep, absolutely. Well, I can tell you, I, Benjamin, I've been a consumer of the VOA uh, in a big trip around the world back in 1988. I had a shortwave radio in places like Africa. You're right. not going to get television or not, not a lot of local radio, but the shortwave, of course, has bounced all over the ionosphere. So right. with a little $50 radio, you can pick up the BBC, you can pick up VOA, you can pick up broadcasts out of the, the, the Dutch, the Canadians, the Australians. And that's how a lot of times I really was keeping up with world events. So it really is big. Yeah, it is very big. Uh, there are many parts of the world where shortwave really is the only way that you can pick up any kind of news whatsoever. And a lot of people listen to shortwave. Now, with the advances in technology in the world, there is a shift toward television, and the Voice of America is meeting that challenge. They've just received major funding to uh, outfit their studios with television, and a great deal of effort now is going into beaming satellite television broadcasts into countries. And it, it's often a better way to get a message into a country because it's more difficult to jam than shortwave broadcasts, which can be easy for governments to block. It's really difficult to get a shortwave broadcast out. They've got to change the frequency. They've got to change how they're bouncing it, skipping it off the ionosphere. And I know just from my own experience, you'd be listening in for a while, and it was good for about 15 minutes, and right. you'd start losing signal. You have to go searching the dial to try and pick out where else it was. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes, uh, the transmissions are broadcast on several different shortwave frequencies concurrently. So if one frequency fades out, or you can't receive it anymore, you can shift over to another one and, yes. and continue yeah. listening that way. I, I've been there. Yeah, right. It <laughs> sounds like it. You're an old hand at shortwave listening. That's good to hear. Because there's so much programming available out there to anybody who's, who's interested in taking up perhaps shortwave listening even as a hobby. Right here in, Sac in the Sacramento region and in Davis, um, you can listen to, to broadcasts from all over the world. Just turn on your shortwave at night and you can hear the Radio Netherlands, right. Radio Moscow, right. all kinds of, of stations. Well, I, I think we sort of forget in the pre-internet 
era, this right. was a way to really get some interesting stuff from out of the blue. And uh, when I was a resident, uh, one of our PAs, physician assistants, had, had this as a hobby. So he brought out the shortwave, and we listened to a Radio Moscow broadcast out of the USSR about this new initiative by Gorbachev. And it was funny because it hadn't hit the papers. We actually heard about it from Mos Radio Moscow before it was actually being covered by the wire services the next day, which I thought was very cool. Wow, that's great. You know, one time <laughs> as a kid, I was listening to Radio Moscow myself, and I, I can't remember the details anymore, but they, they had some very interesting news item uh, that uh, I, I quickly transcribed, and I wrote off to, to Radio Moscow for what's called a QSL card. Uh, QSL card is, is a verification that you've heard their station. And if uh-huh. you're a shortwave enthusiast, you can write to stations and tell them you've heard them, tell them what you've heard, what frequency, and so forth, and they send you back a verification report. Well, I heard Radio Moscow giving this incredible report, and I wrote it off to them. They wrote me back a letter disavowing any knowledge of that broadcast. <laughs> no! <laughs> yes, that's right. Really? <laughs> and then great. <laughs> Well, I, one thing I do remember from that night, that, and I listened to a few subsequently, they kept using a term that you didn't hear in the West, okay. which was the Soviets referred to certain weapons as weapons of mass destruction. In other words, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons. And for some reason, the West did not use that term. Of course, now everyone uses it. But I thought that was an oddity, that that was something that came out of the, uh, the Eastern Bloc and then you know, became the, the term of use. The weapons of mass destruction yeah. term? I remember when I first heard it, and I thought it was uh, very catchy, and I knew we'd be hearing it again and again and again, but I, but I didn't know its origins. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Well, I remember one time, Benjamin, I was in, in Burma, and we'd been, you know, just talking about shortwave, and the owner of the guest house was looking down at my shortwave, and he imitated, this is Voice of America, <laughs> which <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> and so we had a little talk about how, yeah, I listened to the BBC and VOA and everything, but being that it is Voice of America, and it, it's got America in the name, some people sort of look at it as pro- possibly being propaganda, spin by the U.S. government. When people say that to you, how, what, what do you say to that? Well, my answer is that this is really one of Voice of America's central challenges, is having people understand exactly what their mission is and how they operate. Uh, VOA is, in fact, protected by a charter that was signed into law by President Ford in 1976 that protects Voice of America's editorial independence. It states that the news as broadcast by Voice of America will be accurate and uncensored. And uh, the line there is that the administration or any other body cannot interfere with the editorial process at VOA. Now, it has been tested a few times over the years. Uh, There have been some uh, sensitive political issues that have come up where um, certain people in the various administrations may not have wanted the Voice of America to broadcast certain reports that cast the United States in a poor light. But the charter has always held strong and protected Voice of America so that it could always broadcast the truth. And that is the only way that the Voice of America can maintain its integrity, and that's exactly why the charter was signed into law. And and I I can verify on a couple occasions I heard something being covered by the VOA and thought, huh, well, they, right. they didn't bury that, huh? That's right, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But it is natural for people to be suspicious because it is funded entirely by the United States government. But it is protected by law. So rest assured, anything you hear on The Voice of America is true is as to the best uh, that we know. VOA is a big operation. How do they put things together? Right. Uh, the Voice of America is staffed by uh, some 1,500 people. It's a big agency, but it takes a lot of people to... Uh, broadcast in 44 different languages. Uh, of course, you need um, journalists, and you, you need technical crew, you need support crew, you need people to run all the transmitters around the world. So it is a very big operation. The way it works internally in terms of news gathering and so forth is there's a, a, an English language newsroom. 
And um, that newsroom produces essentially a wire service that's delivered to the rest of the house. And then all of your various language services, they're called, all the different departments that broadcast in these um, 44 different languages, translate the news into their language and then create newscasts around it. Now, they can pick and choose what comes from the English language newsroom as to what's most appropriate for their particular um, area that they're broadcasting to and shape their newscasts around that. They can also do some enterprise reporting on their own, of course. That's interesting. There's a VOA sound as to mm-hmm. how the news is put together. The syntax tends to be very simple, and that would make sense if you had to put it forward to be translated into Farsi or German or whatever, right. that it would have to be really clear so there's no possibility of mistranslation. You're absolutely right. The, the, the staff of the Voice of America is, is very aware that uh, many of the people that are listening do not have English as a first language. And so there is an effort to speak clearly <laughs> and to use language that isn't necessarily that complicated or that challenging. But um, that said, the, the information that's delivered is not watered down by any means. How many people do you have working for VOA overseas? The Voice of America has 18 bureaus overseas. The exact number of people that staff it is, I'm not sure, but I believe there are less than 100 full-time staffers overseas. Uh, but there are a number of stringers also that uh, the Voice America employs in various countries. But you're independent journalists. Exactly, yes, thank you, independent journalists. And then there are also a number of technicians uh, that work at um, transmitter sites around the world as well. Is it moving from shortwave into the internet with modern technology, is it? Absolutely, the Voice of America has not lost sight of, you know, where technology is taking media. And certainly the internet is becoming a great source for media for people around the world. And the Voice of America, in fact, established, I believe, the first 24-7 news website in the United States. Hmm. And it is very well read throughout the world. In fact, if you go to Google and you use the news search service and you type in uh, some topic you want to look up, very, very often you will find a Voice of America byline there. So, yes, the Voice of America is, um, is disseminating its news through the Internet. Um, it is slowly moving away from shortwave. as shortwave becomes less and less popular around the world and is concentrating more on radio and television satellite broadcasts and also local placement of its programs on terrestrial transmitters throughout the world. Interesting. I do hope that you don't ever give up, uh, you know, for those people out in the middle of the Serengeti, you know, being able to pick something up out of the ether on the shortwave. It's very gratifying. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm a big proponent of maintaining shortwave broadcast to the areas where it is needed. Now, your background, uh, mm-hmm. Benjamin, from, from talking to you in the past, is from Eastern Europe. That's right. An area that is not noted, uh, certainly during the Cold War, for having accurate reportage. That's and right. uh, is this part of the whole... For you personally, a mission to kind of get uh, get a better set of data out there for people? Well, it is it is definitely a part of my personal journey, you might say. My father was a freedom fighter uh, in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, and he fled Hungary uh, and came to the United States and started a new life here. And I'm a what you call a first-generation American. So I'm very happy to be here and, um, and to have grown up in the United States. And uh, certainly, I find that working with the Voice of America is, is definitely a way to, to pay respect and homage to my father. Um, when I was a kid, he always told me about listening to the broadcast from Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America and how valuable they were uh, to him as a young man fighting against forces that, that were against capitalism and, and freedom of thought and speech and so forth. And uh, they would listen to the Voice of American RFE in their in their bedrooms at night with the, the lights turned off and so forth. So it is very, very fulfilling to be able to, to work at such a great institution. 
Let's take a look back a little bit, a little digression here, back to 1956, and, and there just mm. was the 50th anniversary, which I understand you went back to Hungary for. I did. But, but save that for just a minute, because okay. in talking to you in the past, I know that you have a, a great story about your dad being one of the rebellious people in, in Hungary, and um, when the Soviets went in, they set out to crush that effort to be independent of, of Moscow's control, and I think leading, as my memory serves me correct, uh, leading that, that effort to crush the Hungarians was the future premier of the USSR and future uh, KGB head, Yuri Andropov. <laughs> yes, that's right. And I believe that your dad and Yuri had a little interaction, didn't they? <laughs> that's right. You've got a great memory. I think I told you this story maybe three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so my father is a leader of, uh, of a group of students of, of intellectuals called the Pet- Petifi Circle, named after a man who started an uprising uh, earlier in Hungary's history went on official business to visit uh, Yuri at the, at the Russian embassy, where he was the ambassador to Hungary. And uh, my father was there with uh, his friend, who was later to be known as General Bela Kirai, a prime uh, figure in the Hungarian Revolution. And uh, Mr. Andropov invited them into his office, and while they were um, discussing the matters at hand, he offered them some, something to drink. And uh, my father's friend, whom he was there with, asked for a simple, modest beer. And my father said, well, <laughs> looking at the uh, array of liquor that was available, said, I'll have a Grand Marnier. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Mr. Andropov, Ambassador Andropov, I should say, um, gave them what they wanted. And uh, they concluded their business and went on. And then uh, much later, uh, my father had another chance encounter with Yuri Andropov and and my father said hello to him. And Yuri did not remember his name, but he looked at him and he said, Grand Marnier. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the cheekiness of it. That's right. It was great. Well, 1956 to 2006, 50 years have passed since that, uh, that, that failed rebellion that was, that was crushed. And you went back for the commemoration of that. Tell us about that. I did. Well, it was really a terrific experience. Um, I was able to to retrace the the steps leading up to the revolution. I visited uh, with my wife all the the the, ver- the key points that led up to the actual revolution. Places where the students demonstrated, where people held meetings, you know, where where all the people were coming together and 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 getting angry and deciding to revolt. And uh, I visited the places where the parades were and, and the, where the, oh, the first shots were fired at uh, mm-hmm. Magyar Radio, the Hungarian radio station. Mm-hmm. And it was just uh, terribly moving. And I could, I could hear the events, you know, unfolding in my head. And I could see the places in the buildings where, where bullets had hit the walls. And um, I could see the, the very places where my father was when everything happened um, 50 years ago. And it was very moving and, and terrific to be able to go back at this time. Remember any stories he told about that, the, the, this, how things went down? Or? You know, my father was very, very quiet about it. Um, as I found out, um, as were most or many of, um, of the people that came out of that era, they didn't talk about it a lot. He did talk a little bit about the time he spent in prison camp. He was put in a, in a labor camp, I should say, uh, breaking rocks for some six years. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was terrible. And, and he talked about the incredible camaraderie he had with people in his cell block and uh, how well they got along and, and how they just stuck together to, to just wait it out and just, just get through this horrible oppression. And uh, he told me also a little bit about some of the torture he endured. He would be asked questions. They would want him to, to give up information about friends, to incriminate people, and he wouldn't. He was a very, very strong man, and it's, it's amazing to me the things 
that he endured and 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 how he was able to maintain his integrity throughout that entire ordeal. Well, it took it took a third of a century, but by by the late '80s, uh, change did finally come to Eastern Europe. So I it guess did. people are pretty happy about how it's turned out. Well, yes, I mean things are better better than they were certainly, but. Um, you know, it takes a long, long time to erase even the mentality of the way things were. You know, it's right. still very bureaucratic there. It's very hard to for you know for society to move forward and for the economy to move forward because it's you know the weight of the past is so heavy, and you see it everywhere. You know, uh, as as you you walk around Hungary and, and through Budapest, even the banks have. Uh, it's not uncommon to have a bank account that had, draws negative interest. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, yes, <laughs> it's uh, it's just so pervasive. Well, Benjamin, let's talk a little bit about about Inside. It's been what a two year run, three year run. We're coming up on three years. Okay, and it has been a fabulous experience. It's very very hard to let go, um, not just of the show but of Sacramento. Um, I just love this region. I've met so many wonderful people, and this region has so many wonderful things to offer. It's um, it's really, really difficult to leave. But I've enjoyed um, Capital Public Radio and Insight so much. Um, working with Jeffrey Callison, the host, has been terrific. We recently added um, Jen Picard as an assistant producer who will be serving as an interim senior producer after I leave. She's been a wonderful addition to the program, and I have no doubt that she will continue uh, the great tradition of insight as it exists today and, and hopefully grow it in the future. Well, Benjamin, looking back at the at, at the, the almost three years in insight, what's going to stick out for some of the more humorous uh, moments? <laughs> well, Doug, I think probably my favorite show in terms of, you know, outrageous or daring or just how could you do that on the radio kind of show was when we had a, a woman who was leading a sheep herding uh, team in trials in Ireland uh, come to insight before... Uh, she head out to Ireland with her team, and she came down to the studios with her sheep and her border <laughs> collie. And the station, the, the the station is in a building that is shaped like a semicircle, and yes. then a fence yeah. mm -hmm. finishes the circle. So there's a round courtyard in the middle of the station. That's uh, it's it's a lawn, so it's yeah. you know very nice. And and so the the woman brought her sheep and set them loose in the middle of the station in this courtyard. <laughs> they didn't go like actually through Cap Radio to get to the back, did they? They didn't. No, there's a gate. They okay. did not have to go through the general manager's office, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> or through the studio for that matter. But we set up uh, we set up some remote equipment outside, had our microphones there, and Jeffrey conducted an interview with the woman and her sheep and and border collie live outside and uh, demonstrated, the woman demonstrated how she would use the border collie to herd the sheep and they demonstrated their moves around the courtyard and it was terrific. She blew her whistle and, and uh, Jeffrey did a great job describing what he was seeing unfold yeah. before his eyes. And of course, being that it was radio, <laughs> even if the border collie was screwing up, you could be saying these sheep are being herded perfectly. <laughs> no, see, that would be unethical. <laughs> but in fact, they did do a wonderful job and, and Jeffrey reported it as such. Right? I, I remember that show. That was entertaining. Right. There was another show like that too that I'm reminded of. We had a fellow come down to the station with his homing pigeons. And I forget, I think there was a homing pigeon convention in Sacramento or something like that. And this fellow was from our region. So we set up the pigeons in the same courtyard. 
Uh, and uh, the show has three segments to it. So in the first segment, Jeffrey introdu- uh, interviewed this uh, homing pigeon expert, and uh, he released the homing pigeons in the first part of the show, and we heard them flying away on the radio, and sure enough, they took off, circled the station, mm-hmm. and took off somewhere, and then we talked to the, the homing pigeon man for a little while about the art of hom- homing pigeoning. <laughs> then we broke, and we went to another topic, mm-hmm. and then um, we went back into the studio for the third and final segment, and uh, welcomed the homing pigeon man back, spoke to him some more, and then we got on the telephone his wife, who was waiting at home for the homing pigeons. And then we had a fantastic moment when they arrived <laughs> safely at home at the yeah, end of the show. Yeah, you bet they were going to arrive. What, what the pigeons were all lost in the fog, she's going to go, nope, they're all here. Again, uh, Doug, this comes down to ethics. We tell the truth on Insight. They actually did arrive. It was all true. Well, for the record, I believe you. Thank you. You'll never know. Well, Benjamin Jonas Keeling, it has been it's been a pleasure to speak with you here on on KDVS finally, and and I've had great fun working with you over at uh, KXJZ. Well, Doug, it's always been a pleasure to to have you come and sub host for Jeffrey Callison when he's gone on Insight. It's been great knowing you and great working with you. And thanks for having me in on Radio Parallax today. Well, we're we're pleased to have you, and hope now we have a Washington D.C. correspondent. That you do. <laughs> Give me a call anytime. We'll take you up on it. Great. We are back. Uh, you know, if you do a weekly radio show, it's sometimes hard to come up with stuff, um, particularly positive stuff if you're doing a public affairs program. In a world with so much bad news, uh, we feel that, well, sometimes you have to report on the bad news because unless you have a proper diagnosis of what's going on out there, what can you do about a proper treatment? Whenever possible, we try to inject humor into this program because we think that just makes life go so much easier. But in doing what we do, and in doing what we do how we do it, certain descriptions have emerged of late that at first had me scratching my head. For example, the word snarky. Uh, This came up in an article in the newspaper last week, uh, which of course we'll refer you to on our website, radioparallax.com. But at any rate, I'll be honest, I wasn't really sure what snarky means, so I looked it up. We went to the web and discovered on Answers.com that snarky was defined as 1. Rudely sarcastic or disrespectful, semicolon, snide. 2. Irritable or short-tempered, semicolon, irascible. And of course I'm thinking, well, that, that couldn't be me. So we continued our search. We went to the word detective on the web and found the following. Snarky is an adjective meaning critical in a sly, sarcastic, cynical, but humorous way. Now, that's more like it, I thought. 
Said the word detective, much of modern humor, especially political humor, is snarky. David Letterman and John Stewart are routinely snarky, for instance. Snarky humor is often said to be a recent development, but I remember Johnny Carson and even Bob Hope being fairly snarky in their days. Snarky the word is a fairly recent import from Britain to America, common in the British press for much of the 20th century, but only rarely heard before the early 1900s over here. The root of snarky is, as one might suspect, the word snark, but there are actually two sorts of snark. The first sort of snark is found, or more precisely, not found, in the Lewis Carroll poem, The Hunting of the Snark. The tale of a hunt for a snark, a non-existent creature. This is not the snark of snarky. Although Carroll's poem did popularize snark hunt as a term for a fruitless search. The other sort of snark is a British dialect word meaning to criticize or nag, related to snore and snort. The most likely connection between snark and snort being the derisive snort of contempt that accompanies many snarky comments. To which we say, huh. And that is your word of the day, courtesy of Radio Parallax. And from the good news and bad news file, we have the following. We try to take a very broad view for this program in, in, in getting some guests that we think would be informative and entertaining. And someone we've had on our short list of possible people to seek for the past couple years is Kitty Carlisle. We first thought about going after her in regard to the fact that she's one of the, uh, the last of the people who remembers the round table at the Algonquin, which was an assemblage of, uh, of American wits who frequently met at that hotel in New York, the Algonquin, uh, to uh, drink with and entertain each other. We know that Kitty Carlisle is up in years, in her 90s. Uh, people who are over 45 will no doubt remember her from the television programs To Tell the Truth and What's My Line, which you can still catch on uh, the Game Show Network. Up to this point in time, we never seriously went after her, but kept thinking, well, we should. And, and now I really am kicking myself because last weekend, at age 95, Kitty Carlisle Hart appeared in San Francisco singing to sold-out rooms. Kitty Carlisle was, of course, married to the playwright and director Moss Hart. She sang, she danced, she sang opera in the 1970s. Uh, she appears as the romantic lead in the Marx Brothers' greatest comedy, A Night at the Opera. She's been active in the arts in New York City, and uh, we, we just think she'd be one stunningly great guest. So although we are shocked and chagrined to have missed an opportunity to, uh, to, to obtain an interview in, in, in conjunction with her appearance in San Francisco, we're going to see what we can do for the future. Stay tuned. And uh, speaking of distinguished guests, we're very pleased to uh, have Senator Joseph Lieberman of Connecticut now return to the program after a long hiatus. Welcome back, Senator Lieberman. We're glad to be back, Doug. You know, on Iraq, I, I backed the administration and paid politically, as you know, but I'm here to say I'm unabashed, Doug. Uh-huh. You see, I'm part of the political opposition to the GOP. You see what I'm saying? Uh, not exactly. Well, I don't say that if Dick Cheney or Dick Armitage multiply 7 by 13, he won't get 81, Doug. Uh-huh. I'm bipartisan. You know, if a, if a Republican does the figuring, I'm not one to say he's surely wrong. 
Uh, seven times thirteen is ninety-one, Senator. Well, that may be, but uh, you see my point. That members of both parties can be wrong. No, no, no. What? What then? No, the point is my, both sides can agree to agree on a given reality, Doug. Let's talk Iraq, Senator. Iraqis no longer need to fear Saddam or his henchmen. That's good news. Well, Saddam, anyway. One down. How many to go? Well, that's hard to say, but give us time for peace. Give us time. Uh, how, how much time? Well, that's indeterminate. Meanwhile, we need more vehicles, munitions, helicopters, and troops to get closer to peace. So you seek war to make peace? Well, history shows that this can be necessary, yes. History, like World War One. Well, maybe. It was originally called the War to End All Wars. Well, yes, I know, but let's just say it's not the historical example I was I was seeking, Doug. Uh, the escalation of Vietnam. I hate the word. Well, do, do you recall the war in Cambodia and Laos creating peace? All right, let's talk about the word. I never said let's escalate, Doug. The administration has never proposed an escalation. We, we call it a surge. Isn't a surge an escalation? Surge implies a temporary state, Doug. We surge towards victory. You, you think of the wave at a ball game. That, that's a surge. Senator, why aren't we calling these mercenaries, whom taxpayers pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to patrol Iraq, what they are, which is mercenaries? Well, contractor is the operative word. That's what we use, contractor. Well, take Blackwater. It's a private militia. It's, it's players take up arms, they act for money, and they wage war. Well, how is that not being mercenaries? Let's not argue semantics. Well, would you, would you call hitmen bullet delivery persons? Well, I, I could if you like. Look, let's focus on the positive, Doug. Which is? which is to improve morale in 07, we are going to give a concert series called Get This, Let Freedom Ring. And I'm proud to announce here on your show that Miss Connie Francis will be lending her vocal chops to the cause. She's going to go over. And Herman from Herman's Hermits, I believe. Uh-huh. And Mr. David Hasselhoff himself. He's going. And, and Charo, Miss Coochie Coochie, and, and this new kid named uh, K-Fed. Anyway, we're close to signing James Brown, too. Well, Senator, James Brown uh, actually passed away on Christmas Day. Oh, um, I see. Well, well, then scratch the godfather of soul. Barry Manilow lives. Yeah, but uh, being a Jew is a bit of an issue, Doug. The Iraqi population thinks the U.S. acts for Israel's benefit regardless of its appropriateness, you see. Well, how'd they get that idea? Well, beats me. Look, we've many swell cultural events planned, Doug. Many swell cultural events are planned. A rodeo in Basra, a Tex-Mex fiesta, and chili cook-off, Doug. Such diversions will help people get their minds onto, you know, onto pleasant things. Off, off things like maybe no electricity, car bombs, and chaos? Yeah, off exactly those sorts of things, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, any final words, Senator? Well, in Iraq, we can definitely see the light at the end of the tunnel, Doug. Are you being ironic? Doug, I really must go, but I'll be happy to follow the positive events in Iraq as they unfold, following our surge there. Okay. Remember, think of the wave, Doug, the wave. Well, I'm I'm doing it now, Senator. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. I'll be back anytime. Thank you, Senator Joseph Lieberman. 
And our final item for today's program comes from the miscellaneous file. According to the Associated Press, the most requested document from the National Archives is that photo of Elvis Presley shaking hands with a stiffly smiling President Richard Nixon. This meeting originally came about because Elvis Presley was told by someone in the state of Tennessee that if he wanted to carry a pistol, uh, get a concealed weapons license, he'd probably have to get it from the president himself. Well, Elvis apparently took one of the next commercial flights. During their 1970 meeting in the Oval Office, which was then made a, uh, a photo op, a, a very popular photo op to this day at the National Archives, Nixon agreed to make Presley a drug addict, an honorary deputy of the U.S. Bureau of Narcotics. Armed with this badge presented by the president himself, Presley then had free reign to carry his firearm as he chose. That's it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We would like to thank Benjamin Jonas Keeling of Insight and Capital Public Radio for joining us, and we wish him well and hope that we'll uh, get a progress report from our nation's capital about how things are going in the information wars with Iran. We're very pleased to announce that uh, after seeking her for many months, we have obtained C.C. Goldwater for next week's program. The HBO documentary Mr. Conservative, Goldwater on Goldwater, is, um, well, it's one of the best documentaries we've seen in a long time. We look very forward to talking with Cece about her famous grandfather, Senator Barry Goldwater. We'll see you next week at the same time. Mm -hmm.